The Other Side of the News is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from The Other Side of Midnight. We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus... To bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary. Based on well-verified references vetted through vigilance and discernment. Our desire, desire is to awaken your imagination with questions. Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers. And interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. With clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. Welcome. My name is Timothy Saunders. I am one of your trio of co-hosts on this 95th edition of The Other Side of the News. I am speaking to you this early morning from southwest Turkey and will soon be joined by Kintia from her headquarters in nearby San Francisco and Anessa Driscoll, who is also currently in the Bay Area. This show is entitled War on Truth. Prior to kicking off this evening, I'd like to bring your attention to the sad passing of another brave truth seeker, excellent researcher and valued guest. Listeners will already be aware, Jordan Maxwell, born 28th of December 1940, who last appeared on our show number 65 entitled Legacy of the Gods, sadly passed away on the 23rd of March this year. Jordan demonstrated great courage, determination and stamina while navigating his self-elected life project to better illuminate the lion's share of the esoteric world we inhabit. I'm sure Jordan will be positively remembered for his significant role in opening the eyes of millions as to what is really going on past and present in plain sight. You may learn more about his work at www.jordanmaxwellshow.com. And this week, we are saddened to hear of the passing of Dr. James DeMeo, PhD, who previously appeared on our show's number 88, entitled Big Rigged, and show number 69, entitled Forecasting Humanity. James was born in 1949, and following his formal training in Earth, Atmospheric and Environmental Sciences, went on to undertake the first graduate-level natural science research, specifically focused upon William Reich's controversial organ discoveries. He subjected these ideas to rigorous testing with positive verification and completely validated original findings, which is quite amazing. This led him on to a fascinating research journey, which encompassed human behavior, natural healing, and even weather modification. He was a prolific writer and will be positively remembered for his search for truth using balanced logic and thorough research into multiple unique subjects. His last book was entitled COVID-19, A Pandemic of Ignorance, Fear, Hysteria, and Official Truth Lies. The best website to find his work is at www.orgonlab.org. 
Both of these gentlemen have left us examples of unique legacies of wisdom from which to learn from, not just the subject matter, but also the principles they used. While millions are awake and continue to awaken those around them, I often reflect on how the current climate continues to hold countless swathes of the population in stasis, like mesmerized souls trapped on the conveyor belt of life, instilling the importance of discernment and truth seems to be our best hope to regain the attention of these numerous individuals who currently remain unaware and incapable of carrying the torch forward. However, breaking through is an uncomfortable process and is more evident today than ever. As we turn our attention to the top story for the last six weeks on every Western mainstream news channel, the key program being broadcast in lockstep is filled with propaganda to instill high-level fear porn and hatred towards anything and everything Russian, all in relation to this Ukrainian variant. While similar news speak, mass formation and censorship techniques are clearly in play, the COVID-19 pandemic itself almost seems a distant memory. However, one can retain a clear head just long enough to do a little independent research and engage even some basic common sense and discernment. There is much to learn from various official organizations quietly making U-turns and in some cases overtly admitting the disastrous management and handling of this alleged COVID-19 virus. Further, certain documents are now being reluctantly released, which show how in many cases the dangers of adverse effects and death were known prior to experimental ejections being released on the, to the public. Certain celebrity doctors have all but vanished from our screens. Whatever happened to Fauci? Remember him? This subject will not go unnoticed. We intend to dedicate a show to this very subject in the coming weeks. So this timely fog of war has provided the perfect smokescreen to leave the previous chapter and set us up for the next, unless, of course, you are willing to take a more active role in shaping our future. Before we advance any further, I will underline this current outbreak of physical warfare it is not the correct solution, in my opinion, and I do not support either side or any side. I only seek the truth, whether it's good, bad or ugly. Unfortunately, there will be no winners in this battle, at least no winners outside of the elite, aka the minority. While the US, UK, EU, NATO and UN seem hell-bent on escalating this deep-rooted conflict to World War III status, other countries such as China, India, Pakistan begin to align with Russia. Nobody seems interested to discuss de-escalation and peace. And while many perceive the clock to this kinetic war started as late as February this year, the origins of this literal theatre of war began long ago with some acts having already been played out and with promises of many more performances yet to come, possibly to include propaganda, censorship and blackouts, self-destruction, the global financial system, manufactured food shortages, uh, climate change, potentially leading to necessitate the introduction of digital ID, digital centralized money, and of course, or potentially a social credit system. While this may seem a very bleak period in human history, 
change is required to evolve. There's no going back now. And the trick is to learn from the past in order to make the correct decisions as we move forward. I very much look forward to hearing our guests' perspective regarding this essential awakening process, all with a view to illuminate the best path to lead us to a positive outcome. You may find us at the www.theothersideofthenews.com, where you'll see quick links to our independent Rumble and Telegram platforms, details for each show, which include links to our bios, show items, references, and selected research. As usual, there is a huge collection of information to read, watch, and to listen to, most of which has been handpicked from independent sources. I urge you to study them and even download your own copy sooner than later, as the censorship robots work around the clock to rewrite our history in real time. During the last week, we've been deluged by another wave of remarkable events and headlines reported in the news to discuss, validate, and present each topic in correct context could all too easily fill up an entire show by itself. And as the other side of the news is not per se a typical news show, and in order to make the best use of our available airtime, we should plot a direct course to greet the rest of our team and to introduce our guest, Dr. Richard B. Spence. Good evening, Kintia. Good evening, Aneta. Since Z or Z and V have been deleted in certain alphabets to support the Ukraine, has uh, Volodymyr Alensky appeared on any screen near you yet? Mm. <laughs> no, you go take that away, Cynthia. I, yeah. No, that's kind of quiet on the front here. Okay, so your still your screens are still filled with Will Smith and uh, whatever his name is, Chris Locke. Right, right. Well, well not, I I'm don't not, really watch TVs, that's, but well, that's when, important. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't own a television, so this is a little tough. Yeah. Yes. I was visiting family and they were watching the sports, but mm. nothing was mentioned about any possible thing of significance, which is sad to say. Although I can say that I enjoyed being away because where I was, people really weren't wearing masks. There were just a few of them. And so that was nice to see, start seeing people smiling or talking normally it was a relief but it's still the same down here in the bay area so anetta yeah well you know what i'm surprised that we haven't outlawed um blue and gold i mean really well you know why, why not outlaw the colors too <laughs> since for that <laughs> i mean it's just it's just, the absurdity level is the same no um well I mean, it's you mentioned that California has been nicknamed California for the last uh, few months. So what, mm. what's the local, you know, what's the local temperature taken in California these days? You know, I have to tell you that in, in truth, I really try to avoid all of my fellow Californians. Truthfully, I am in such a liberal area that I don't even interact anymore because I'm tired of being attacked. Uh, if you open your mouth and you say anything that's contrary to what they are totally brainwashed with, that's it. And, and you're just, you know, it's really bad. So uh, I'm self I'm self-censoring, I guess, and self-editing. I mean, I'm, I'm not quiet otherwise online and in other, other ways, but locally, I'd say that they're pretty, I'd say they're pretty indoctrinated because they, they're still driving around in, in the car by themselves with their mask on, let alone everything else. So they, they're not, they're not getting it. So, and because 
they listen to the news. Clearly, they listen to the news. That's how they got the idea that they need to wear the mask in their car by themselves. Yeah, I think that it's pretty bad here. I do yeah. want to say one thing, though. I do have many friends um, that are of the alternate view. And while we're not walking distance from each other here in California, a lot of emails fly back and forth between all of us sharing information like what you see in the links. So I wouldn't say it's totally a desert. Just no, but, but to just walk out on the street and, you know, your, your next hundred people walking down the street, that's, that's pretty, pretty tough. So I'm curious, you know, how this Ukrainian situation is going to impact us locally and globally. And, um, I think it's really interesting because they're trying to say, now this is one thing I do. So, so I do follow a lot of clips from the news. Um, I post some on, on the uh, Telegram channels and stuff. So I want to see what is being said. And, and uh, so I see a lot of, of that, you know, this whole thing around Ukraine and how it's the cause of the gas prices rising and it's this and it's that and it's inflation and it's the devaluation of the dollar. And what I do notice across the board is, is people aren't buying that bullshit. They just aren't. It's, it's, it's so far fetched. It's so crazy. Um, and even except for the super diehards, I think, you know, the, the fact is, is that our gas prices had gone up more than $2 a gallon before Ukraine, uh, out here. And, uh, so nobody's buying that. And the inflation rate, we had we had had so we had seen everything going up. I mean, lumber was is six times what it was a year ago, six times. So uh, we aren't buying that. That's from Ukraine. Um, so I think that's part's pretty good, actually. I wanted to say that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's a good time to bring on our guest, unless you want to say something else. <laughs> no, go well, ahead. I was just going to comment on the inflation rate very quickly. Um, you guys, should we do a quick check-in? Have you any idea what it is stirring around at the moment in, in your neck of the woods? We've we've uh, surpassed the, the the double digits now. We're into the yes, and um, and that's of course you know with our very rotten. Actually, I found some really good data, and I got to refine it. But that's with our really rotten system of of trying to make it look like something it isn't. In truth, uh, it's it's as you know well beyond that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because yeah, yeah the, the big offenders are removed from the calculation. I believe is yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, right. So uh, you know, so no one uses, no one eats or uses any energy or has a roof over them. Their heads are they're starting not Correct. to more and more. Yeah, <laughs> or if you want to build one, forget that. Um, it's crazy. It's crazy. Mm. I mean, I, um, you know, I went to buy uh, some lumber this last week, and it's ten dollars to walk out the store. With a uh, with a two by four. Well, um, yeah, that's and, and incredible. The, that's not coming from Ukraine. No, so. no. Well, well, over this this part of the world, uh, inflation uh, is about to just is just about to be released for uh, the last month. The official figures, anyway. But the early estimations are putting it something uh, breaking the sixty percent mark. Just for your information, it oh. seems to be raising around 10% per month. Mm -hmm. um, so last month, I think the official rate was 54.5% or something along those, those lines. I say when the last month, the previous month. So we're now in April. So the, the, we're all waiting the official 
figure four for March. Yeah. So uh, how are they surviving there? Seems incredible. I think we're we're very rapidly moving towards a let them eat cake moment. Um, (laughs) Well, positive attitude and and big smiles and, uh, you know, just just think positive, Kintia. That's how we're surviving. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But uh, anyway, maybe we'll come into the uh, the financials and, and a lot of other points through the course of the evening. But uh, I just thought I'd lay that down because it's it's, it's clearly not a, a normal increase. Yeah, and, and, and uh, so with Russia, and I'm sure we'll get into this with Rick, but you know, with Russia, basically he's he just put the world on the gold standard, whether people understand that or don't. But it it still happened, so it's something absolutely really significant. <laughs> That's yes, that is so. Anyway, go for it. Yeah. So our guest is Dr. Richard Spence, and we're bringing him on because we want to understand really what's going on over there. I mean, there's so many polarized media reports on the Ukrainian crisis. And Rick is a historian specializing in Russian and military history, espionage, occultism, and anti-Semitism. And he's going to help us understand these complex issues. His books include Wall Street and the Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1925, Secret Agent 666, Aleister Crowley, British Intelligence and the Occult, and Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley. So welcome to the other side of the news, Rick. Hi. I'm really happy to have you here because people are inundated with mass media. And I'm just wondering, like, in the background, the historically, what's brought us here and what kind of hero or legendary figure in Ukrainian history has set in motion things that we see here? Well, one of the, the uh, I guess the guy I'd like to start out talking about is Someone whose name is maybe cropped up in the news. I mean, if you if you listen closely to discussions of Ukrainian nationalism, especially stuff coming out of people who proclaim themselves Ukrainian nationalists, you'll come across the name of Stepan Bandera. Uh, but before I, I, I turn to him, I'd I just like to say one thing, sort of in reference to what you guys were talking about, the uh, the sort of deluge of bad news and inflation and doom and gloom. And, and one of the things I was telling uh, one of my friends uh, a couple of weeks ago, you know, he and I exchange a, a lot of things back and forth and he's always sending me stuff about the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the next catastrophe, which is going to befall. And I told him at one point that I, you know, I, I have apocalypse fatigue, right? <laughs> it just, the the world has been predicted to end in so many different ways. So many terrible things are going to happen that you know it's I, I it doesn't phase me much anymore. Mm-hmm. And I guess part of that is that in the last six months or so, I've gone through uh, kind of life threatening health issues, and you know, my basic feeling is that well, these things might kill me, but they won't kill me today. <laughs> you know, it's it's not something that's likely to happen then. And I, I think that tends to wear down a lot of people. I mean, it's the, the constant prediction of the collapse of civilization or of the economy or, you know, we're all going to be drowned by rising seas or something else is going to happen. And it's just you know, to the point now that it's just I have apocalypse fatigue. Right? I think that's a beautiful on. way to express it for sure. And 
I also think that it's been very deliberate that they are doing this so that we will have apocalypse fatigue. Uh, it's, um, I'm sure I've mentioned this on some show before, but there's an American philosopher who's largely been edited out of history by the name of H.L. Mencken. And uh, M-E-N-C-K-E-N, H.L. Mencken. Anybody should go out and look for quotes by H.L. Mencken. You'll entertain yourself. And one of the things about Mencken is that he tended to say, mm, let's say, uncomplimentary things about almost everybody. So one of the things that he said about historians, by the way, is that they're failed novelists. <laughs> Which, <laughs> there's more than a shred of truth in that. Um but Mencken has a, has a particular quote. You can find it if you look for it, and I'm going to paraphrase it. I probably won't get it exactly. But he said that basically – and keep in mind, he's writing in the early 20th century. Mencken is writing this probably around 1920 and basically says that the essence of modern politics is to keep the population aroused by a constant string of hobgoblins, most of them imaginary. And the idea of constantly keeping people in, in a state of anxiety and fear. And boy, I don't know what the last couple of years demonstrates better than that, whether by design or accident. That's certainly what has what has taken place. So let's go back to this guy, Stepan Bandera, and see if I can make some kind of sense out of this. So what I'm going to be talking about are things that have already happened. You know, Stepan Bandera has been dead since 1959. And why should we be concerned about him? Because if you look, for instance, at um, the proclaimed Russian war aims, so the Russians say there's there's two things that they want to achieve in their, as they term it, their special military operation in Ukraine, and those are the demilitarization and the denazification of the Ukraine. So denazification, are there are there Nazis in Ukraine? How would you know, how would that come about? And the name that will often be connected to these alleged Ukrainian Nazis or the Nazi movement there is Bandera. And so Nazi Banderite Banderists are sort of used interchangeably mm. in Russian discourse and, and you'll see them discussed elsewhere. And Bandera is a very interesting guy. And he does hold a an important sort of inspirational position. In uh, if you look at what we're talking about here, generally talked about in the Western press, are what are called the nationalist battalions. So keep in mind, if you go through what I'm hopefully going to try to give people is that if you look through the the reporting, the images, all the words that are being thrown at you from either side about the Ukraine. I'm going to try to point out certain names or symbols to look for and to try to give some background as to what those are. So the nationalist battalions, sometimes called the national battalions, sometimes called the Nazi or neo-Nazi battalions, sometimes called the Banderites or Banderists, those are not part of the regular Ukrainian military. So there's the armed forces of Ukraine, that's the, the regular army, and then there are the national battalions. And the two that get most of the most of the news is the Azov, what's called the Azov Battalion, uh, which has been involved in the fighting going on in Mariupol, this town which is uh, gradually being captured by the Russians and their allies. 
and also the IDAR battalion, but there are many other ones. So right away, there's a certain cognitive dissonance here because the term battalion in military terminology usually refers to a fairly small formation of around 500 fighters. That's usually what a battalion is. So if you're talking about a battalion, you're talking about something that's from a few hundred, maybe up to several hundred. It can vary a lot. So the the Azov Battalion and the others started out that way. Azov certainly did, but it has grown considerably. So you're not really talking about a formation of 500 fighters or 1,000 fighters. I've seen figures anywhere between 6,000 and 14,000, which, you know, tells you nobody knows exactly. And sometimes the references to the Azov Regiment. I've even seen someone talk about the Azov Brigade or Division. Those are all larger formations. But keep in mind, whatever way they're talking about, that the Azovites are, are a kind of paramilitary movement. They're not part of the regular military, and they often don't see themselves as under the military command. So, Rick, are you saying yeah. then that the, that they don't take orders from the same people that give the orders to the military? Well, they're supposed to, but they seem to only do that when they want to. They have their, they have their own sort of command structure. They have their own, let's say, very militant their own militant nationalist agenda, which um, they're, they're intensely anti-Russian. That's one of the things we'll get to as to why they are, they are so anti-Russian. Do, do they so, go against the military? Um, I mean, like, is there a conflict in, in, in tension from those two groups? This, the closest thing I could compare it to, and this isn't exact, is that if you looked at World War II and you looked at the relationship between the German army, the Wehrmacht, the regular army, and the SS, the Waffen-SS, so those people out there who are World War II historians certainly know about the SS, which informed entire divisions, and it was a kind of state within a state and an army. And the SS was a a political organization. The SS is a branch of the Nazi party. It was not part of the regular German military, even though it had, and it had its own rules for recruitment, got choice of recruits and weapons. In many ways, it was the kind of elite in many, in many respects of, of, of the German armed forces. And yet it wasn't formally part of the German armed forces. It was in wartime, supposed to be under army command. That's one of the things that Hitler's Wehrmacht generals insisted. They weren't going to put up with some sort of separate army under its own generals doing their own thing. So in the, on the battlefield, the SS was to be subordinated to the command structure of the Wehrmacht. And it generally tended to work that way as long as the SS wanted to go along with it. But they always had a tendency to see themselves as a force apart. So in the war in Ukraine, the Azovites, the, the Azov units and the other nationalist battalions are fighting the same enemy. They and the armed forces of Ukraine are fighting the Russian army and its allies. So they're on the same side, but they have a divergent agenda and they don't see themselves, I, I don't think in particular that the Azovites or we'll call them the the, the 
quasi-Nazis. I'm going to keep qualifying that. I'll, I'll explain why. Uh, uh, you know, they'll, they'll go along with Zelensky and his government and his military so long as it serves their interests. But they would turn on him on a dime if it didn't. That is, they have no particular – they have no – particular loyalty to the present Ukrainian government or to Zelensky as president or even to the armed forces. Their loyalty is to this grand idea of greater Ukrainian nationalism. Anything which serves that purpose is at least temporarily an ally of theirs. But they they are certainly the, the most determined foes which which the Russians have. These guys in Mariupol and elsewhere will fight to the death. They are Rick, motivated Rick. by an intense nationalist ideology. So, Rick, we're at the bottom of the hour. I'm sorry to interrupt you. So we will take this conversation up on the other side. And I just want to uh, let everyone know that our first uh, message here comes from uh, Dr. James DeMeo. So I wanted to make sure to play his voice so we could all hear him. I, I really miss him. I love that man. And uh, so here we go. Take it away, Keith. My approach to it has been, of course, from this academic scientific side to try to show that from that point of view that even in the in the depths of the of the data that they're presenting they don't have a case they've misrepresented things they've distorted things in the public representations and of course I'm not alone in having come to that conclusion number 1 there are an increased number of deaths for 2020 but number two, these are not caused by COVID-19. They're caused by the biological and psychological effects of the lockdowns themselves. Because when you lock people down, when you wreck an economy, you get an increase in heart disease and cancers you get an increase in what is called death of despair. Oh, you get suicides, you get drug addiction going up and overdoses killing people. And all of these things put together by my estimate in my research paper shows that as many as 600,000 people died in 2020 from just these things, deaths by despair and the effects of the lockdowns and the forced masking. This is Dr. James DeMeo, and I'm speaking to you from the other side of the news, being interviewed by three intelligent people. And I found it to be a very enlightening and helpful and wonderful experience. Your program, I must say, compliments you. You're doing a great job in assisting to get around these barriers of censorship and erasure that the mainstream media is doing. 
Uh, so it's very important, and I congratulate you for the work you're doing. And welcome back to the other side of the news. Our guest tonight is Dr. Richard Spence, and the show is called War on Truth. And Rick, you were just telling us about how the, quote, Nazi, the Asimovs had their own kind of, they were taking their own direction. I mean, they were sort of, were aligned with the military against Russia, but, and I want you to continue where you left off. Well, they're on, they have a cause. They, they have, they're, they're devoted to what they see as, as the Ukrainian national cause. And in their view, they are the they are the vanguard of that cause. They are the true representatives of it. And you know, Zelensky and the Ukrainian military and even the present Ukrainian state are all sort of along for the ride. But they see themselves as the leading element in this struggle against a against a a cultural enemy. And that cultural enemy to them is Russia and everything that Russia represents. And one of the things you'll notice, if you if you look around, if you look at the various scenes of destruction in Mariupol or elsewhere, one of the things you may see, you'll often you may see it displayed by uh, by Russian troops, is a red and black flag or banner. And wherever you see this red and black flag, that basically is the Bandera flag. That 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 goes back to this fellow I'm going to be talking about. It goes back to a thing called the Ukrainian Insurgent Army, to an organization called the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. But that's one of the ways in which Bandera and his legacy show up is that the present fighters, the Azovite fighters, and those of the other national battalions embrace his flag as their own. And that's how his legacy continues, even though, as we'll see, he's been dead since 1959. So one of the things maybe that, that comes up often, and I, and I don't really think gets in any kind of fair shake, especially in the sort of Western coverage of this, is, you know, what exactly is the difference between Russians and Ukrainians? And you know, where do Belarusians fit into that? And you can get into this, um, there, there are sort of two divergent points of view. And on the Ukrainian nationalist side of it, certainly I, I think as the the, the Bandera side of it would be to argue that the Ukrainian people are now and have always been a national entity separate from Russia. They, they have always existed. They have always existed as a coherent people. Uh, in fact, they may even argue that they're, you know, it, it's, they, they are not a branch of the Russians. The Russians are some sort of degenerated branch of them. Um, but they are always a distinct entity. They've always been separate from Russia. They've never been the same. On the opposite side of that, you have the kind of Russian imperial or Russian chauvinist view, which is you know, strongly represented on the current Russian side, which is that Ukrainians are merely a regional variant of a single great Russian Orthodox Slavic people. That they are that they are part of a of a Russian family. Mm. Uh, now, so so there again, see this is this is where you can look at. It, it's it's what I talk about when I when I say that that history is composed of narratives, or that history is just a narrative, or we always and narratives that you know that's just a fancy word for a story. 
So often what we have, really, when you break things down to facts, which means things that you can be absolutely certain of, about which there is no particular question, you know, not the matters of debate or theory. If it's a matter of debate or theory, it's not a fact. But you have facts, but you don't really have very many of them. And then what we do, being human beings, because we, we like things to, to make sense, is that we construct narratives or stories to put all of those facts into this story so they'll make some kind of sense. And on either side of this, the whole debate as to whether Ukrainians are now and have always been a completely separate people or whether they're part of some sort of greater Russian family of peoples um, is, is really a matter of sort of constructing a narrative. It's sort of selecting those particular historical elements you want and, and, and spinning the story in a direction to, to get the desired result. And both of those stories make sense. But, of course, they're completely incompatible with each other. Now, this much can be said. I, you are whatever it is you believe yourself to be. This is the, the whole essence of national identity isn't really a matter of, you know, people say, well, it's a matter of DNA or genetics or history. No, it's not a matter of any of those things. It's a matter of belief. Mm. Because the reality is, is that most modern national identities are recent creations. They, they really come into existence during about the last 200 years in terms of what people are. And, you know, here, here's an example, another one, but which is kind of a model for others. The modern German state, that is a country, a thing on the map called Germany, didn't exist until 1871. Right? That there, was a, there was a region of Europe inhabited by a lot of people who spoke similar dialects and had similar cultures, but had different dialects and religions that was called Germany or the German lands. But there was no Germany. There was no German state. There never had been, not ever, until 1871. So what basically happened was that in that year, uh, through a lot of historical events, I will not make any attempt to describe here, the German Empire came into existence. And some 30-odd German states that a few decades before had been 300 German states were now combined into an empire under a single emperor. And that now meant that there was a, there was a political nationality. There was, this, there, was a, there was a German state, and so now there are Germans. There are – but – and in fact, they had a lot of differences between them. They, they sort of spoke the same language, but with a lot of regional differences. I mean, Prussians weren't Bavarians. Uh, people from the eastern part of the country weren't the same as the part from, from the Rhineland. There were a lot of variations in between, between them, and, and they never previously existed as part of that. You know, Germanness was this kind of vague similarity. You had other people living around you under different political authority. And now you all woke up one morning and you were uh, subjects of the German Empire. So one of the things that needed to be created and was then created through state education and through, through a kind of official culture was the creation of a German national idea and a German national identity. And someone, I think, uh, fairly recently said, well, you know, what, what really sort of defines uh, – national identity and, and his statement was, well, it's it's a it's the vision of the common future. And I think that's wrong. That's I think it's it's putting things it's it's not a vision of the common future at all. It's the vision of a common past. 
But because before you can envision a common future, you have to be able to envision a common past. So an effort was made, a concerted effort, and it was made in every other country that came into being, whether it was little Balkan states like Bulgaria or Serbia, Romania, whether it was in Greece or whether it was in unified Italy, wherever it might be, there was this effort to create an identity for people that had previously never actually existed. It never had any reason to exist. And then you have to get into this idea of defining what that is. So, you know, you've, you've created this, you know, you've had a rebellion against the Ottoman Empire, and you've now created a kingdom of Greece, and now it's going to be inhabited by Greeks. It's a country for Greeks. Well, the next question is, who exactly is a Greek? How do you determine that? <laughs> and, and one of the first things you find is in these places is that not everybody who lived there was Greek. Okay. And by the way, that was the same in Germany. I said that there were differences between the Germans, but this German empire also included millions of people who were Poles. Some of them spoke French. Others were, you know, smaller Slavic groups. So up in the far north, they were Danes. They weren't Germans at all. But they were still Germans in a political sense. So one of the things that began was that we're going to have to Germanize everybody. So everybody who lives in Germany who isn't a German will have to be Germanized. So you, it will be, become illegal to use Polish in any kind of public documents in school. Even though your parents speak Polish at home, you're going to speak German in school. You're going to have this drilled into you. And in some place like Greece, you know, these people are might you know live up in the hills are actually Albanians. Well, that's not it. We're we're going to bring them in. and We're going to turn them into Greeks, or we're going to chase them out. Or I would imagine expelled. that music also plays a big part in this. Yeah, well, funny you mentioned music because one of the elements in creating a a a glorious past that never existed was Richard Wagner. You know, mm -hmm. the whole sort of ring cycle, you know, all those plays. Right, you know, right. Women with breastplates and horned helmets and dragons and treasures. I know this, this was Wagner was an intense German nationalist. And one of the things he wanted to do was to create an art, a music, a kind of musical, mythical pageant of a mythical German past that would be for all Germans. So he invented something. You know, I mean, he took older stories that were around, but he basically repackaged it, and it was essentially nationalist propaganda in musical form. It it is it is beautiful music, but his main purpose he wanted to create this kind of mythic past to serve the interests of German nationalism. One of the things, so this this in the 19th century, this spread everywhere. There's this thing called the springtime of the peoples. You know, it was always every single country had some relatively small group of educated intelligentsia who suddenly decided that they were going to rebuild or recreate the national identity and glory of their individual peoples. And that's all well and good. But one of the results of that, one of the things about nationalisms about which really is a kind of fancy word for a tribal identity. Okay? You know, it's you know, if you're talking about nationalism, you're sort of talking about creating this super tribal identity. This it, it's a psychological operation. It's a psyop that you're having on people. Is that nationalisms as intensely devoted as they are to their own cause? are in almost every case utterly indifferent or hostile to anyone else's nationalism. They really don't care. So to 
to a, a, a fervent Greek nationalist, uh, the, the travails of Albanian nationalism or anybody else's is really a matter of absolute indifference to them unless it somehow serves their particular interest. And if it in any way gets in their way, if there's conflicting claims on territory or you have these pesky villagers up in the mountains who continue to speak whatever sort of backward non-Greek language they had before, well, then something has to be done with them. And then that's almost inevitably, not in every case, but in so many cases, it will ultimately generate down into violence. Okay? It becomes increasingly intolerant. It tends to breed hatred against anyone who doesn't fit into the new national mold, and it leads to destruction. So here again, to bring us back to Germany for a moment, how did things eventually turn out there? See, one of the whole questions that would eventually come up was whether or not the half a million people or so that lived in Germany, a country of, you know, by that time, 65 million people, half a million out of 65 million in the early 20th century, Jewish Germans, whether they were Germans at all. And this became a matter of debate. Are these people really Germans? And I just leave it to everybody out there to figure out how that turned out. Okay, this was this again, it became one of those things in which this whole effort to try to define what something was had to define itself against something else. So Ukrainian nationalism and even Russian nationalism, for that matter, comes out of this same sort of period, the whole idea of creating the glorified past. But one of the things, again, that uh, what what happened is that. Even up until the early 20th century, there's there's no country, nor had there ever been a country called Ukraine hadn't existed. I mean, you can't find in any particular period of history something on a map, and part of the reason for that is that all Ukraine means is borderlands. Okay, It doesn't define a people. It defines a place. It defines an area. It just defined an area, a constantly shifting, war-torn frontier north of the Black Sea. So people who live there were borderlanders which again isn't much in the way of defining who you are except where it is that you lived. But there was an idea since you know everybody else was getting their nations together, uh again there were a relatively you know small number of people, educated people who studied history and ethnology and one of the things they get an example of this is a guy by the name of Mikhail Khrushchevsky. And Mikhail Khrushchevsky born in the middle of the 19th century, lived until the 1930s, is really the kind of father of modern Ukrainian nationalism because he's the guy that that really sort of created this this history. One of the things he wanted to do was to link the history of Ukraine back to a whole series of peoples that went all the way back to classical times and the Scythians. So if you go back to classical Greece, if you go back to the golden age of Greece, and to the, you, you can find that running around up in those steppe areas, the area where Ukraine would be now, where people called the Scythians. And the Scythians really didn't have anything to do with anybody who lived there later. But nevertheless, in his effort to sort of create a, a glorious past, a history, you know, the idea that the Ukrainian people had always been there under one name or another, and they had always inhabited this area, and that there was a historical continuity, he sort of dragooned everybody into this. And, you know, the, the interesting thing about Hrushevsky is that by modern standards, he wasn't a particularly intense Ukrainian nationalist. So mm. Hrushevsky, for instance, recognized that there was a great deal of of continuity and, and commonality between Russians and Ukrainians. I mean, 
this would probably get me in a fight with some people, but Khrushchevsky, through much of his career, seems to have assumed that Ukrainians and Russians were, well, he certainly assumed this, they were more alike than they were different. Mm-hmm. And here again, it's one of those things to keep in mind even today. If you looked around Europe, if you looked around in the whole area around them, Ukrainians and Russians are more like each other in terms of culture and language than they are to anyone else around them. I mean, with the possible exceptions of the Belarusians, who are kind of third small component of this, but all of them, they share a great deal in terms of history, in terms of religion and culture and what they eat. I mean, look at it. They, they, they look the same. This is one of the things that's, that I think in many ways makes images from the war so confusing and so malleable, yeah. is that the people all look alike. If, if you're not Ukrainian or Russian, they all sound alike. The language they're speaking would sound the same to an outsider. They're pretty much wearing the same kind of uniforms and using the same equipment. This is the, way, the main reason why the only way you can really tell each other apart is what armbands they have on. Well, it's so I mean, hard to even imagine if they're so similar how they could be fighting each other, except that they're, I, that's that's exactly it. They they are more like each other than they are anyone else around them. So Ukrainians are closer to Russians than they are to Poles. They're kind of close to Poles, but they're closer to Russians than they are to Poles. Certainly more so than to you know Romanians or Germans or Latvians or Lithuanians or anything else. And yet here you have these two peoples who are in all practical points linguistically and culturally more like each other than anyone else are now locked in a bloody battle. Basically, it almost feels like a civil war there in that area. It's a kind of cultural civil war to some mm-hmm. degree. But it also, I think, shows this sort of, you know, I, I don't want to damn nationalism as an evil. Nationalism can be a thing that can motivate and can unify and can inspire people. But on the other hand, the reality, the historical fact is that it can also, in this case, divide and uh, people and, and, and simply sow hatred and division. And, and really, in the long run, it's very good at sowing hatred and division. And that's what it's done. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's, it's so it's, confusing yeah. because there's so many different types of tribal people in the Ukraine. I mean, like, I mean, I'm, I've looked at these maps where you see these different origins of people and you think, how on earth did that ever even be delineated to be a country? It's like well, it's really it's, confusing. It's changed over time. Like I said, the, the definition of where the borderlands were and what the borderlands were has changed over time. So I think in the in the images you have, uh, these are kind of recycled from a previous show. There's, there's a series of maps that I brought in, and if people simply look through those, you can see that at different points in time, under different authorities, what was defined as the Ukraine varied considerably. It's all kind of sort of in the same place. Yeah. But the borders are are fluid, and sometimes they include this area, and sometimes they they include something else. There's there's no fixed, you know. It's true for every other country on earth. God didn't create the world and draw borders around countries, all right? Right, that didn't happen. right. Okay, that, that only happens because people establish it, and generally borders are established by some sort of governmental fiat or they're established by war, and therefore they are constantly changing. So, so yeah. 
I know that Annette is is wanting to ask you some questions. I think it's along the same lines. Can I bring sure. her in? Sure, sure. Yeah. Nice. Hello. Uh, yeah, I did. I did want to talk about that. And actually, it's still stuff from the past. But I wanted to bring up all of the revolutions, the color revolutions that they have had, in case people aren't aware that there's been at least three that I'm aware of that have happened in Ukraine. Uh, and why this is, you know, how, how these people are pitted against each other. And I, and I, I, I want to draw the analogy, like what we have in the United States where yes, we're all Americans, but then, you know, we have these other things. Like in other words, you know, the big division right now is they can say, uh, you're a Democrat versus a Republican or conservative versus liberal, blah, blah, blah. Personally, I don't, I don't buy that, but you know, I think that we might be looking at something in a way similar. And then we've also got the idea that there are, you know, the Russian speaking people that are, um, that are of Russian descent. And then there's the whole issue where because Pol because, uh, Ukraine didn't actually exist and then it, it was divided up as a spoil of war, like you said, but we've got the Polish influence. We have the, the, uh, Jewish and the, uh, Russian, and then all the genocides that occurred occurred around that that they that have been pushed back and forth, and that they've really been engaged in a civil war for the last eight years for sure, and actually before that, but very actively since 2014. So any part of that that you'd like to to get into, I mean, it's all connected up. Well, depends on how far back you want to go, and if you go all the way back to the 17th century, there's a long series of massacres. And it all has to do with that through much of its pre-modern history, from around the 14th century to the 17th century, most of the territory that is today the Ukrainian state was under the rule of Poland, a thing called the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. But, you know, for all practical purposes, let's just call it Poland. So for centuries... Those territories were under the domination of the Poles. Now, the Poles are a kindred Slavic people, but there was one big difference. The, the Poles were staunchly Roman Catholic, uh, and most of the inhabitants of the area that was Ukraine, what, what the Poles called the Hetmanate of Kiev, they never called it Ukraine uh, on an official sense, were Orthodox Christians, as, as were the Russians. Okay, and and for what that, uh, you know, it, this is one of the problems we're having this story. And to explain one thing, you have to explain something else. Um, I'm just going to go on the assumption that most people know that the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church back in the early Middle Ages split, and have never seen eye to eye since. That there are that there are differences between them, and that became this kind of of cultural benchmark. And what happened is that in the middle of the 1600s, there was a huge rebellion that broke out basically against the Polish landlords. And the other thing that the Poles had done is that when the Polish authority came into Ukraine and the Poles established themselves basically as the nobility, they also brought in some hundreds of thousands of Jews because Jews had been welcomed into the Polish state, and they often formed part of the middle class, and they came in as well. So in the minds of the locals, Poles and Jews were linked together. You know, the Polish landlord, the Polish pan, Polish pan 
No, the master comes in and he brings his Jews with him. So when this rebellion broke out, they started slaughtering Poles and Jews, killed tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. It just became an every it became this whole sort of, you know, one of these almost sort of slave rebellion types where killed the master was was the aim. And and that's really where Russia was able to gain control of that area. That is the Russian state, the Russian Empire. Because the Russian Empire, to a sense, supported and in many ways sort of egged that rebellion on. And they did so by arguing that, see, the Tsar in Moscow, he's an Orthodox Christian like you. So therefore, because of his religion, he is your rightful ruler. And, you know, because we Russians are somewhat more like you than these dastardly Poles and their Jews, uh, and that therefore we would support it. And what that began was a whole series of wars that ended up with Kiev and much the city of Kiev, the capital, and much of the Ukrainian territory passing under Russian imperial control. But this had gone back and forth. Um, you know, Khrushchevsky sort of around the beginning of the 20th century, this fellow I mentioned, this a scholar, you know, himself, that's all he was, you know, he was a, he was a professor and he wrote a book, which was in which he'd laid out a, you know, partly true, partly fictional and imaginary history of the Ukrainian people, but it, it sort of caught on with other people who wanted to be Ukrainians, and it began a, a, a kind of movement, a small movement, mostly among intellectuals. And by the time World War I came along, you now had these people who, as the war went back and forth, saw a chance to advance the idea of a Ukrainian nation. So within the Russian Empire, Ukrainian nationalists said, well, we'll remain loyal to the Tsar, but the Tsar has to give us autonomy. We want autonomy for Ukraine. We want our own sort of territory within the empire. Really what they wanted was independence, but, you know, you couldn't say that too loud. But then another thing was that the Ukrainian-speaking peoples weren't all within Russia. <laughs> Some of them lived in the neighboring enemy Austro-Hungarian Empire. Again, World War I, Germany, Austria, Hungary are at war with Russia. Ukrainians are divided between those two camps. Most Ukrainians are in the Russian army, but some Ukrainians are in the Austro-Hungarian army. And the Austrians decided that they would sort of push or utilize, exploit, I think is the term I'm looking for, Ukrainian nationalism, because they didn't have too many of them to worry about, by creating a separate Ukrainian military unit, which they called the Ukrainian Legion, and said, ah, see, now you're fighting for the liberation of Ukraine from Russian rule. And so within this 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 Austrian-Ukrainian area, that's, that really became the kind of heartland of Ukrainian nationalism. And it's also the area that this guy I keep trying to get to, Stepan Bandera, was born. So Bandera, the sort of great hero of modern Ukrainian nationalists, was born not in the Russian Empire, not in Russian Ukraine. He was born in what had been Austro-Hungarian Ukraine, which then after World War I, through changes of borders, became part of a new Polish state. Okay, yeah. Rick, we're at yes. the top of the hour, so uh -huh. we're going to stop right there, and right. and let's go right into that and come right back on that, okay? So right. we're at the top of the hour right now. This is the other side of the news. Tonight's show 
is uh, War on Truth, and we're interviewing Dr. Richard Spence, and we'll be right back. This woman named Violet, she's got a 16-year-old son who's autistic. And she kept trying to file for an exemption for the mask. And the teachers were, you know, they refused. And they were really right up in his face trying to keep this mask on him all day because he was clearly uncomfortable and agitated with it. Well, he got to a point where he was doing physical harm to himself. So he had to be placed in a mental institution. So Violet decided to go down and acquire the bond of her superintendent, her, the assistant superintendent, the treasurer, and the assistant treasurer. And this superintendent turned out to be bonded for $4.6 million per claim. So Violet went ahead and uh, served this woman a letter of intent to file a claim against her surety bond. And when you file a letter of intent, you basically have to list their violations. And in this case, she had concluded that this woman had broken 27 state, federal, and international laws, including color of law. And she served this woman along with 10 other friends. Her claim, $4.6 million per claim. Wow. So we're looking at 40 plus million. Being in <laughs> potential liability. So needless to say, the superintendent went on the run. This was over the Christmas break. Uh, and she tried to call the police. <laughs> she tried to get the sheriff involved and she literally went missing for a week. <laughs> oh my goodness. And uh, when school came back in session, Violet went ahead and served her in person. So six days later, so what you have to do is you have to give them this letter of intent. And in that letter, you have to declare what you want them to do to resolve the problem. So she asked this superintendent to one, drop the mask mandates, two, admit that she was wrong when it came to her son, and three, to resign. The woman did nothing. So on day six, Viola went down and filed the claim. And this claims adjuster really had no idea what to do. You know, they're looking around for the forms, like, oh, this has never mm -hmm. happened. You know, oh, right, geez. right. And uh, so, Violet went and filed the claim. The very next day, they had a, a private meeting, but it was recorded with their counsel. And we have their counsel uh, on record communicating to the board of directors. They actually used the phrase, we should buy some more beer and heroin because you guys are in deep trouble. We had oh to stop gosh. all state and federal funding. They had to um, drop all the mask mandates. They had to start calling in parents to assist because they couldn't pay their teachers. And they left the superintendent out to dry with this $4.6 million in liability. So a week later, Violet felt quite guilty and she had gotten what she'd wanted. They had removed the mask mandate. So she went ahead and she retracted her claim out of a, a measure of good faith to let this woman know, hey, I do have this power. I don't intend to overuse it. You need to back down. Well, what did she do? She went right back to her old ways, put the mask mandate right back in place um, uh, and, and acted like nothing had ever happened. So Violet went ahead and filed another claim because she can. And the problem is not resolved. And, uh, and anyone can do this. Anyone can do this. 
Hi, this is Mickey Klon, and it was such a joy and pleasure to meet with Kinthea, Annetta, and Timothy on the other side of the news. Good evening, and welcome back. Tonight's show is War on Truth, and I am co-hosting it with my co-hosts, uh, Timothy Saunders and Kinthea, and myself, Anetta. Our special guest this evening is Dr. Richard Spence, and we were just talking about this uh, gentleman who died in 1959, but apparently left this indelible mark on Ukraine. So well, take it away. You know, to clarify there, he's assassinated in 1959, but we'll get oh, to okay. later. So, okay, that, that that adds to the story. So, All right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, Stepan Bandera uh, is a an ethnic Ukrainian. Is he? Is it? And but he's not remember born in Russia. He's born in what was then the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1909. So he's a kid when World War One goes on. And again, to condense a very complicated and and. Uh, violent period of history into a short period. There there are efforts after the Russian Revolution, you know, sent everything flying off into space there. Uh, there were efforts between 1917 and 1920 to create a Ukrainian state. And there actually was briefly, you know, it would, it would kind of flicker in and out of existence. Uh, the, the, the nationalists, the, the first nationalists were able to uh, briefly establish a, a government, which they called the Ukrainian People's Republic. Uh, but the problem was they had to do that with the support of the Germans, who proved to be, shall I say, unreliable. And uh, when the People's Republic didn't give them the food that they wanted, they overthrew them and replaced them with a military dictator. And then he was overthrown and replaced again with the People's Republic. And then that was overthrown by the Bolsheviks. And it goes back and forth. And Kiev changes hands over two years. Uh, something like 19 times. So uh, the the chaotic uh, situation prevailed, and this early attempt to create a Ukrainian state failed. Okay, that that some people may object, but but it did. It didn't work. All right, luck was not against them, uh, and that's because that nobody was really who could have helped them do that. Whether it was the Germans, the Poles, the Bolsheviks, anybody was really interested in that. Nobody wanted a Ukrainian state. But there was still this movement that then went into exile. So there was a there was a small exile government, and there was what remained of a kind of small Ukrainian army, and most of its members ended up in exile in places like Berlin and Paris in the 1920s. And they they, they formed an exile organization called the OUN, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. In fact, I think that that inaugurated itself in a conference that was held, not in Ukraine, but elsewhere, in, in 1929. So by 1929, uh, Stepan Bandera has come of age. So he was a kid during World War I, but he grew up in the 1920s, again, not in Russia, but in Poland. And here's one of the little things about Poland and about the intolerance for one form of nationalism for the others. The new, the Polish okay. state was recreated, right? Can I, can I ask you a question here? Just sure. So I'm, I'm making sure I'm tracking. So he was he was born in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but then right. he grew up in Poland. Right, because so the this... Austro-Hungarian Empire disappears in 1918. Oh, okay, okay. So at the end of World War One, so if you look at a map now, no Austria-Hungary. Okay, it's there, 1918. Austria-Hungary broke up, and it became countries like 
Hungary, Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, and part of it became part of a new, newly resurrected Poland. That's, that's a little separate bit of history because Poland hadn't existed as a country since the 18th century. So between 1795 and 1918, no Poland. There are oh. Poles living in, some of them live in Germany, some live in Austria, some live in Russia, but no Poland. So here again, the difference between the people and the state. So Poland was recreated, and through more violence and warfare, it, it gradually creates the borders of what was called the Second Polish Republic, which comes along you know, 1919, 1920. So the thing is, is that this new Polish state was Poland. That's its name, right? And it's ruled by Poles. And who were, many cases, were, of course, for the most part, intense Polish nationalists. But the problem was, is that within the borders of Poland, one out of every three people wasn't Polish. The other one-third of the poll of the population consisted of the big. What do you suppose the biggest, what was the biggest minority in, in Poland? Ukrainians. Oh, Ukrainians. Okay. Oh, Ukrainians. Ukrainians. And so Polish nationalism, being what it was, said, well, all of you Ukrainians within Poland are now going to become Poles. So in school, you're going to learn Polish, and it's going to be – we're going to drill this Ukrainian nonsense out of you. So that's what Bandera – that's what he grew up in, and that's what he came to hate. So by the end of the 1920s, Stepan Bandera was an angry young man with a chip on his shoulder, and the chip on his shoulder was mostly against the Poles. So he joins the organization of Ukrainian nationalists. He finds his cause. And in 1934, he's involved in the assassination of the Polish minister of the interior. So a group of these angry young men, these Ukrainian nationalists, get together, and they decide they're going to strike back against the oppression of the Polish state by killing the minister of the interior, whose job was to ride herd over the over the minorities within the country. And they do, and that lands Bandera in a Polish prison. Further, you know, that's not going to make them like them any better. And he pretty much stays in a Polish prison uh, until the late 1930s. Um, but he and other members of the OUN, so so here you've got this, this nationalist movement which is it sees itself as persecuted from every side. You know, it's now it within the main Ukrainian territories within Soviet Russia. Well, they've all been taken over now by the by the Muscovite Bolsheviks, and in Poland they're ruled by the Poles, and so they're looking around for anybody who can help them. And the one thing again they find is that the Germans, especially the new the new nationalist regime in Germany, which has come along under you know who Adolf Hitler. So around 1938 or 1939, uh, Bandera, I think, has managed to get himself out of prison. He signs up basically as, as an agent for German military intelligence because he's looking towards the future. And, and, and like everyone else, he thinks there's going to be a war in Europe. And that's really where he sees his chance and Ukraine's chance of being. In, other words, in order to create a chance for our nation to exist, we'll have to destroy other ones. And the first one we've got to destroy is Poland. That's what the Germans want to do. So therefore, the germ, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's how the phrase goes. Yes. Except mm -hmm. it, it never actually works that way. What you always have to remember is that the enemy of my enemy is also my enemy. It's just <laughs> yeah. a matter of whether or not, because the Germans will never prove to be real friends of uh, 
of the Ukraine, but they'll use them. You know, they'll enlist Bandera and other angry young men to carry out sabotage and spying in Poland. And then, of course, in 1939, the Germans invade Poland along with who? The Soviets. Okay. The Muscovite Bolsheviks take, and in fact, the Muscovite Bolsheviks take over that whole eastern area of Poland, which was the Ukrainian national territory within Poland, Bandera's, Bandera's homeland, and in fact, the, the town that he had grown up in. So he flees. He doesn't want anything to do with the Bolsheviks, so he flees to the German-occupied area. And again, collaborates. You know, so, so this is this is one of the issues. This is part of the argument about Stepan Bandera and his legacy. And this is where you'll get an argument. On the one hand is the argument that Stepan Bandera, by 1939, had essentially become a servitor of Nazi Germany, that he had aligned himself with the Germans, that he served them as a spy, that he served them in, in organizing and arming uh, Ukrainian volunteer movements that were then going to join the Germans when they invaded Soviet Russia, and that therefore he was, you know, the term was he was he was a German stooge. Now, there are people who object to that and argue that no, that Stepan Bandera was a devout Ukrainian nationalist who was just doing what he had to do, and that he realized that... Uh, the Soviet Russians were the much, you know, they were the ones who were actually now occupying all of Ukrainian territory, even the part that had belonged to the Poles, and that the only people who could possibly get that away from them and give it to us, us being the Ukrainians, are the Nazis, the Germans, right? So he, he just did what he had to do. You know, he, he wasn't really a Nazi. Well, you know, you can see the arguments on that. Now, on the other hand, you can find that the OUN itself openly embraced a fascist ideology. Now, not a Nazi ideology. They're talking more like Mussolini, you know, Nazism light, I guess. But, you know, the, their idea was that the future Ukrainian state would be modeled essentially on fascist Italy. Uh, it wasn't going to be some sort of beacon of liberal democracy. And the other thing that they had also declared is that the future of Ukraine would be an ethnically pure Ukrainian state. Now, see, those are the words that when someone speaks them, you better pay attention to them if they're serious, because you have to consider what that means. The future of Ukraine will be an ethnically pure state which isn't good news for anybody within whatever its borders turn out to be who isn't considered to be a real Ukrainian. And that depends upon whether or not they're Russians or Jews or Greeks or Bulgarians or any number of other people. But those are sort of, those are, that's a potentially dangerous phrase when you issue, because you have to imagine what direction, because how are we going to achieve that? Well, we're either going to achieve an ethnically pure state by you know, doing what the Poles tried to do to the Ukrainians in Poland by educating it out of them, by drilling Polish identity into their head through schools and propaganda and breaking the heads of anybody who disagrees or throwing them in prison, or we're going to chase them out. That is, we'll, we'll expel them from the country, or the third option, we're going to kill them. But that's the only way you're going to do that. You're either going to coerce people, you're going to expel them, or you're going to kill them, because that's the only way you're going to get an ethnically pure state. 
So Bandera himself is quite, you know, as he sees it, devoted to that idea. And I think you can, yeah, he never seems to, and, you know, he wasn't an idiot. He, he knows that the Germans are simply using him. But he hopes that they will help him more than they do. So he thinks his chance comes in June 1941 when Hitler make, breaks his deal with Stalin and invades the Soviet Union. And, of course, cuts right through immediately that part of Poland, that part of Poland that had been Ukrainian and then into the Ukraine itself. So Bandera and his friends think their day has come. So just a couple of weeks after the Germans have marched through that area, they go into the western Ukrainian city of Lviv, which had been part of Poland before and Austria-Hungary before that, and they proclaim a Ukrainian state. They proclaim Ukrainian statehood. Now, the German military and political authorities, especially the Nazi authorities, are not happy with that. Okay. They were perfectly happy to have him working for them. They were perfectly happy to have him you know, enlisting every Ukrainian he could to be an assistant to the German army. Uh, but they didn't have any use for a Ukrainian state because, you see, Germany's – or let's put it this way – the Nazis' long-term national ideas didn't have a Ukraine in it. The Nazis were simply going to their their whole plan was something called General Plan General Plan East General Plan Ost doesn't get talked about much in World War II but it should be and General Plan Ost was simply the German long term plan for what had been Russia and in this case it, it wasn't too good for anybody who lived there because the plan eventually was to um, eliminate over a period of time half the native population and replace them with German colonists. This was now going to be Lebensraum. And therefore the only you know, the basic idea put very simply, I think once by Hitler, is that we'll we'll reduce the number of Russians, and he was including Ukrainians in that by half. Uh and those that remain will be uh servants for German colonists and we'll basically we'll teach them how to count to a hundred and read road signs and that's it. But in the long run, they're slated for demolition. In the long run, they will simply be eliminated. They will be sterilized or euthanized, and they will cease to exist. The Germans came east with a gigantic long-term genocidal agenda that had no place for Ukraine. Now, this is despite the fact that Hitler's generals, you know, many of whom weren't Nazis, were fighting a war. And they were going, look, we need all the volunteers we can get. And, and one of the things that Bandera and the OUN said, one of the things that Bandera offered to do was to raise an entire Ukrainian volunteer army to fight alongside Germany. He offered to do that. So, I mean, again, you can argue he did it out of necessity or out of ideological conviction, but he was willing to fight arm in arm with Nazi Germany to destroy Muscovite Russia or any Russia that was in their way to achieve his national idea. But the Germans, you know, initially thought they were winning and they didn't really need him. So eventually they just decided he's a pest. So in the fall of 1941, they arrest him. Now, they don't kill him. And they actually put him in, you know, as concentration camps go, you know, it's sort of like the federal prison version of a concentration camp. They kept him on ice is what they did because they thought they might possibly need him. And the war, of course, in the Eastern Front turned against Germany. And it also was this whole question of, of you know, how the OUN, 
how how the Ukrainian nationalist organization, you know, what their relationship with Nazi Germany could be. So the Germans thought they could do without him. Then in 43, they kind of take him out of prison, dust him off, thinks maybe he can help them again, raise more volunteers, which he does, you know, comes back. You know, once again, you know, whether he's simply helping the Nazis because, uh, you know, it's, it's the only game in town. If you were going to fight Stalin, is the only one who's fighting him. But so it's it's a complex relationship. And in the same way, one of the things that that Bandera's organization did, this this OUN, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, formed a kind of guerrilla army, which was operating in the Ukraine mostly in the areas that the Germans occupied. And and here again, you get this whole ambiguity. Sometimes these Ukrainian guerrillas cooperated with the Germans when it was in their interest to do so. Sometimes they fought them. As the Red Army began in, in 43 and 44, began to reconquer the Ukraine and move closer and cl- further and further west, the Germans and the OUN decided that there was now a kind of a desperation time that they began to collaborate somewhat more. But you know, everybody's doing this with their fingers crossed behind their backs. The only reason why the Nazis helped the OUN was because they thought that you know they could be cannon fodder for their nationalist cause, and the OUN thought the same thing. But of course, skip you know, cut to the chase. Uh, Nazi Germany loses. Okay. Uh, the, the Russian Red Army takes over everything, all of the Ukraine. It overruns Poland, you know, right up to Berlin and beyond. And the Cold War intervenes. So Stepan Bandera survives, and and he goes to the Western occupation zone of Germany, to West Germany, where he finds that there, you know, uh, now things are different. Nazi Germany is defeated. And yeah, you know, he'd been a Nazi collaborator, but now our enemy is who? Well, it's those pesky commie Russians, right? And he's an enemy of those. And so he therefore finds that, well, for one thing, British intelligence and also later the American CIA were more than happy to assist him and the surviving elements of the OUN. And they would even do things like train them uh, around Munich and they would use planes to parachute uh, sabotage teams but you know in into Soviet Ukraine to sort of try to carry on and there was a kind of guerrilla war that was carried on in western Ukraine by the OUN with British and American support up until 1949 it was defeated let's say that it was ground underfoot by the might of the Soviet Union uh leaving much death and bitterness in the wake but in the meantime the, the the OUN, while it was fighting, you know, again as they saw it, these you know these these Russian Bolsheviks, they were still they still had their vendetta against the Poles. And today, while Bandera is widely viewed as a hero in Ukraine, not by everyone, in Poland he is viewed as the devil incarnate because one of the accomplishments of the OUN's guerrillas during the latter part of World War II was to systematically massacre between 75,000 and 100,000 ethnic Poles in Western Ukraine. They would go in and slaughter entire villages in very unpleasant ways. Burning people alive in their churches was just the, the easy part of that. But that, that's, that, and that memory was still left. So one of the things that happened is that after Poland was set up again, you know, commie Poland was set up after World War II, 
uh, one of the things that happened is that they expelled every single ethnic Ukrainian they could find in the country, pushed them across the border into Soviet territory. Very roughly, you know, your clothes on your back and you get out or else. So the relationships between Poland and Ukraine are <laughs> there's, there's a you know, there's a, a lot of bad blood there as well. So Bandera was, uh, you know, for those who survived with his movement, he became the symbol of sort of Ukrainian resistance. But he, but here again, you've got this kind of complicated historical picture. So the fact, the thing that you really can't whitewash away is that Bandera was on and off for his own interest, a Nazi collaborator, and to a great extent shared not Nazi ideology, but shared their sort of general worldview. He had his own sort of Ukrainian version of that. Now, you can then argue that he did this because it was necessary to achieve his greater goals. I mean, there may be a number of reasons for it in this case, but but to those people who harbored the idea of Ukrainian nationhood, he became a hero. To those on the other side, to those in Ukraine who were Soviet loyalists or to Poles, he was the devil incarnate. So his memory kind of survived. He, by the way, in 1959, I said he was assassinated, and he was assassinated um, – by one of his own men, in a sense, uh, he it was a young fellow by the name of I think Igor Stashinsky, and Stashinsky was had been recruited into the OUN, and he was one of these guys sort of trained to go on a mission inside. You know, he was parachuted inside Soviet Ukraine, and he was caught. Mm. But instead of simply getting a bullet in his head, he was given a choice. Your choice is you can change sides and you can work for us, us being the KGB. So he decided that survival was, in this case, preferable to dying for the greater cause. Uh, he was trained by them, and he was given a poison gun, <laughs> basically a kind of squirt gun that squirted poison. And he was sent back, and and he killed, he uh, assassinated Bandera, thus turning him into a martyr. So you got to skip ahead now to 1991, and the Soviet Union breaks apart. Ukraine, like all the other Soviet republics, becomes independent. And one of the things that that did in this new atmosphere is that without the Mino Battle Communist Party riding herd over everybody, and I mean, keep during the Soviet period, Stepan Bandera is again a devil. Okay, nothing good can be said about him. No one could espouse any kind of admiration for him. But now, after 1991. Out of the woodwork come a surprising number of people who argue that he is now going to become the the symbol, the martyr of a new, greater Ukraine, which we envision as being ethnically pure. And this is essentially what emerged out of this uh, by the time you get to the early 2000s is a political organization called, um, you know, Pravi Sector, Right Sector. And right sector actually was the union of a number of, you know, for lack of a better term, Banderist, or they all had a kind of similar inspiration from the OUN. They had some differences, you know, differences mostly in leadership because they were, you know, mostly like gangs that would, you know, everything. Often there were too many leaders and there were followers. 
But they joined together. They were never terribly numerous. They are not a large political movement, but like, you know, like any good militant nationalist movement, they're aggressive. And here is one of the, again, the things to understand about history as a whole is that history is almost never made by mass movements. Mass movements achieve virtually nothing. History is made by aggressive minorities. It's made by small groups of people focused on a cause who will aggressively and usually violently pursue the ends of that because most human beings are kind of inert. Most people just get pushed around. Yeah, we certainly see same, that happening today. Yes. <laughs> yes, it's the same. It's the same sort of thing that every bully understands. Okay, this is why one person, often not a very big or strong person, just through kind of psychological dominance and a certain degree of physical aggression, can can push other people around. And that's what these movements often become. And you know, everything from Mussolini's fascist movement, the Bolsheviks were an example of that. There were never that many of them. But they were well organized, they're focused on a plan, and they, they, they pursue it aggressively and when necessarily violently. And that will simply intimidate most people. This is what history is. It's the mass of people being pushed around by violent gangs. Yes. Well, that's exactly what's going on. Yeah. In fact, we're in this information war at this point, and that's exactly it. And uh, believe it or not, we're at the bottom of the hour. So. We have to go out to that break, but we will be back very shortly with our guest this evening, who's Dr. Richard Spence. Our show this evening is War on Truth, and I am co-hosting with Kinthea and Timothy Saunders. We will be right back. It's funny because I think, you know, I went through my crazy phase where I made mistakes before the Internet and before social media and before any of this, whereas now you can't do that. There's no such thing. So like you're saying about black and white and what it does is it stops people expressing themselves. People are too frightened. It's like, you know, I want to say something, but if, what if I use the wrong term? But I remember a story a couple of years ago where Benedict Cumberbatch, who at the time was a darling in the media's eyes, was complaining about the disparity between the treatment of um, black actors and of white actors. And, and he was sticking up and saying, you know, they're not getting paid as well. They're not getting the jobs that they should be getting and they're being, there is no equality. But what he said was there isn't equality for colored actors. Well, you've said colored there, Benedict, you can't do that. And so they went for him and he was vilified and he had to come out and do a big apology. Now what it was, it was, it was a slip of the tongue. He's obviously not racist. He's actively trying to say that there is discrimination and he's trying to stick up for that community, but he was vilified and attacked. And that's what happens now. And so when people make their mistakes now, they make their mistakes on the internet. They make their mistakes on social media where they're screenshotted forever. And so I think that's all part of the conditioning that people are frightened. You know, if you're in a position where I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, in the end, you'll go, well, I won't say anything then. The fallout of this is gonna be extraordinary with that because People don't realize, you know, when you, 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 you're phoning up the police and grassing on your neighbors and when all this ends, they're still going to be your neighbors and you're still going to have to live next door to them. And good luck with that. Hello, everyone. My name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. 
fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy and Annetta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. So welcome back to the other side of the news. This edition is entitled War on Truth, and we are joined by Dr. Richard Spence. Richard, thank you very much. I've been listening intently to uh, an incredible background. I mean, what, what you've just gone through in the last uh, you know, hour and a half is has really offered a lot of context to to me for what's going on. I, I you know, very happy to say that what I see is from a perspective, um, you know, from from this this point of view, from today and from, from you know from sort of recent decades of, of history. But what you've done is is really brought to the table a lot more information, which which. I, in, in some ways, simplifies and helps me understand what's, what's going on more in, in Ukraine today. But on the other hand, it also it, it also adds more dimension, more more possibilities. It makes me more even more curious as to why there are so many people uh, with fingers in in the Ukrainian pie at the moment, or it seems that way. Do you want to? continue from the 1990s forwards and then perhaps we can break into sort of the present day or, or would you like to jump jump well, straight to the um, present day I, you know i can add a little bit more to that it's one of the things i'm doing is i'm i'm you know grossly glossing over a lot of there's there's always more but i hopefully i'm i'm trying to create some kind of well narrative out of this but to again so i go back with bondera was a person who through his history one of the things about him and one of the things, everything else, and again, it flows through history, whether it's the history of Ukraine or Russia or whatever, there's always ambiguity. I mean, it's it, it, it's the kind of natural characteristic of human beings. You know, it's almost as if to say that, you know, in, in even, the, even the worst person, there's some glimmer <laughs> of, of goodness. There's... And one of the things you find, if you look at historical figures, there are people who can do do terrible things, and yet you find that there's a whole side to them which is not what you would expect at all. So let me go to the 1990s. So Right Sector, as a political organization, doesn't officially come into being until 2013. That, that's what it is. By the way, just before the, the, the Ukrainian political revolution in 20, and that's not accidental – but it had been moving for that before. So keep in mind, the, the, the Soviet Union collapses in 1991, and along with it collapses this whole political paradigm. So everybody's scuttling around trying to find some sort of new idea to stand behind something. And, and that will create a new kind of Russian nationalism. You know, Remember, if we're not the USSR, because th- this, is, this is what the Soviet Union had taught for 75 years. It had officially taught that nationalism is unimportant. It had argued that the only thing that is important is class. Now, the whole idea is the Soviet state is the dictatorship of the proletariat. It is not the, you know, officially, it is, it is not the country of the Russians, the Ukrainians, or anyone else. It is the glorious state of the working class, and it unifies all of these different peoples, Russians, Ukrainians, Tajiks, and the rest of them, uh, under the, the Soviet system and under the communist idea. So, so communism was this class-based idea that basically argued that nationalism 
was something that was, you know, it, it was a primitive concept that communism had swept into the ash can of history. Well, that didn't work out. But when that's gone, what else do you have? And so one of the things that almost began to inevitably arise, both in Ukraine and Russia and in every one of these other republics, is this whole effort now to define a national identity. And the 1990s through the former Soviet Union were a difficult time. It was a time of uh, economic setbacks and collapse for poverty for many people. Uh, you know, the Soviets had done a pretty good job of creating a social safety net, and now that all collapsed. And one of the things that you get is another generation of what? Angry young men. Angry young women, too, but especially angry young men. So it's not difficult to see how in Ukraine, in this period of dislocation and disillusionment and poverty, that someone like Bandera, if you were looking for a cause, he would become your hero. And so this whole new generation of angry young men began to attach themselves to this idea and to this concept of a unique, ethnically pure Ukrainian nation. So I ran into some of these guys really back in the, in the late 90s, not in Ukraine, but in, in, in Germany, where they were living and working. And, and, you know, the interesting thing was, is that even then, well, you know, I'm talking to this guy, and he's got a swastika tattooed on one side of his neck and SS lightning bolts on the other. And that created certain problems for him in Germany. In fact, I think eventually kick it because those symbols aren't allowed. Those are forbidden in Germany. Um, you know, he was a foreigner, but you know, so he, he, you know, he covered them up as much as possible. But he had more tattoos. I mean, you know, he had like this big swastika on his chest. And my question for him basically is, are you serious about this? I mean, is is this really, you know, because you're not a, you know, Nazism was a very intense form of, let's face it, German nationalism, which fundamentally, I've actually put this, I said they had no use for people like you. Okay, to the, to the Nazis, to the people you're adorning, the symbols you're adorning your body with, considered a Slav like you to be nothing more than untermensch, to be nothing mm. more than slave labor. So what are you doing this for? <laughs> I mean, are you serious? Is this some sort of aesthetic thing? And it's... Um, I'm very intrigued to, admit, to know how he's going to answer you. <laughs> well, the, 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 fellow, the fellow was actually, I mean, this is the interesting thing. He was quite well educated. And he was fairly articulate. And this is even stranger. One of the things that he had studied and was an expert on was uh, on the writings of Dostoevsky, who's a Russian writer. Wow. So the one thing he's proclaiming is how much he hates Russians. But on the other hand, he apparently loves Dostoevsky because, well, you know, he's an exception. And this is what I mean by, I, I don't know, ambiguity is part of it or just some kind of... Uh, just I have to put it another way, how weird people can be and, and how you can get these seemingly completely incompatible things. His argument in part was that his explanation to me was that he realized that, you know, the, the old Nazis, the, the German Nazis were, you know, not favorable towards Slavs like himself. But he believed basically in the kind of vision which the Nazi state had, but transmuted to the Ukraine. 
And then he said, you know, from his standpoint, he could sort of understand what it was that the German Nazis wanted to do, and that had he been one of them, it would have been the same. But he wasn't a German, he was a Ukrainian, but he believed that the only way that Ukraine could assert itself, the way that it could become a real country, is it had to free itself, see if this sounds vaguely familiar, of all the accumulated foreign influence which had infested and, and distorted its culture, and most of that had come from Russia, his argument was that Russians weren't real Slavs. They were all the descendants of Slavs that had been, you know, pretty much raped by Mongols back in the Middle Ages. So they were this kind of semi-Mongol people. You know, and it, it, it's really sort of echoing this sort of Nazi idea of mongrelism that, that had to be destroyed. So Ukrainians and Russians really weren't the same because the Russians were all polluted by, you know, by... Asiatic Mongol barbarism and that Ukraine was the only kind of pure orthodox Slav state and that's why it had to reassert itself and it had to expand. By the way, he envisioned a much bigger Ukraine at the expense of Russia. And, you know, I don't know where this guy is today. <laughs> I don't know. He might be a little bit old to be, you know, fighting in the Azov Battalion or one of these other national movements. But his ideas were very, very consistent with this. I mean, this this movement existed in some kind of embryonic form well before 2013. And it was, you know, it, it's the same sort of question I've had before, I mean, you know, I, I've, I've run into Americans, you know, it's not that unusual. You run across whether they're bikers or whether they're somebody else and, you know, they've, they've got Nazi tattoos. And the, the question I often have when I'm often trying to figure out, again, is this – are you doing this just to piss people off, really? Because, you know, I, I, <laughs> you know are you just is doing it, it for the shock value? Is right. it 15 minutes of fame, or is it something you truly, you know, dearly believe in? Or, yes. or are you are you actually committed to it? And so one of the things that I always like to ask people who profess that they're Nazis or think they are is I go, well, okay, you've read the 25-point National Socialist Program, right? Because, you know, <laughs> the party had a whole program, the 25-point program, the only one it ever had. So do you know what those 25 points are? Which is your favorite one? Yeah, exactly. And and uh, and that's that's in a way, you know, that's kind of my smart ass way of trying to test this. Whether you know, are you ideologically a national socialist or are you just a poser who's doing this for shock value? And you don't want to say that to Nazi bikers, by the way. But uh, <laughs> but it's. It, and and I've gotten, you know, you find different response to that. And I think, see, it comes down to this question about the argument you now get, and you can find it in the Western press, who are, who are, who are really, I think, in many ways, trying to whitewash these people, if that's the right worm for it. You know, by arguing that, no, no, the whole myth that there are Nazis in the Ukraine is all this kind of Russian myth, and there are no... Well, there are a lot of people running around with, you know, you know, bond, you know, who've got, you know, SS and Nazi tattoos, and and why do they have them? And I'm not insisting that it necessarily makes them ideologically a Nazi, but or they. One explanation for it, I think, is that among these modern sort of angry young men who found the, their their sort of god in this nationalist movement. They focus their hatred against anything they view as Russian. And one of the things, therefore, that is most hateful to them is any kind of symbol of Russianism, which they often identify with the Soviet Union. Therefore, you know, hammer and sickle, 
they don't like. That's that's an anathema. So what you might think of is that if you were a young Ukrainian nationalist who wanted to adopt a symbolism that would be the most anti-Russian and offensive thing that you could come up with, it would be Nazi symbolism. And the reason for that is that the Nazi German invasion of the Soviet Union during World War II was the most catastrophic military campaign in history. The Soviet Union lost more than 20 million dead. 15% of the population of the entire Soviet Union perished in that war, Ukrainians, Russians, and the rest of them. Huge amount of destruction. A great deal of hatred was generated on each side. So in, in Russia, for the most part, symbols of Nazism are deeply hated because this is seen as a movement which was indeed dedicated to the destruction and essentially elimination, not just of communism, but of our entire people. So, you know, on the other hand, Hitler was the one who challenged Stalin, came close to conquering it. So in a way, if, you, if you're groping around for some sort of symbol you're going to tattoo on yourself that would, in essence, most piss off the Russians, it would probably be anything associated with the Nazis. So it still brings us back to the question, does that make you a Nazi or does it just make you a poser? And at what point do those two things, you know, mm. what, at what point do they sort of combine? At what point doesn't it matter? Um, so I think it's, like, it's a kind of complicated issue there. It's highly complicated. I mean, yeah, the thing that um, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about at the moment is the way that the it seems, and I say the Western media, I outlined in the opening of the show, the sort of the, the countries which are very well aligned, they, as I say, they seem hell-bent on persecuting, in fact, Putin as, as the new Hitler of the 21st century, as opposed well, to, I mean, all of, the, all of these uh, ideals that are being highly mixed up and... Let's take some of these young Azov guys and bring them to the United States. So you got a bunch of young white guys with Nazi tattoos. Okay. Normally, the New York Times would argue that these are dangerous examples of neo-Nazi white supremacists and probably Trump supporters. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. They would they would cast them into into that mold, whether they deserved it or not, because those types of things would be that that offensive here. Um, but it's, it's, it's just, you know, again, it's the way in which the, the truth, you know, the, the spin is placed on this. So Nazi symbolism and racial supremacist ideology in Ukraine, as long as they're fighting Putin and the Russians, is kind of okay, whereas here they would be a danger to American culture and Western civilization. Okay. Indeed. There again, you have this essence of, of you know. A matter of sort of, you know, creative reality, which everyone will sort of serve your interest. Or hypocrisy. Yeah, it's another word. Well, hypocrisy, hypocrisy is another term. Useful, sort of weaponized hypocrisy. Maybe that's a way to put it. Yes. Now, this, this, this whole thing about, you know, Putin is the new Hitler. I, I, you know, Putin is certainly a ambitious politician, a demagogue, and a kind of quasi-dictator, but I wouldn't take it any further than that. He's not a new Hitler. I mean, in, in, the, in the way that Hitler is portrayed, even Hitler wasn't Hitler. I was going <laughs> to say, do I, I mean, mean, do people actually know what Hitler was like in himself? I mean, we know 
according to the propaganda. We know according to the way the victors wrote the history books. But do we actually well, even know that? The uh, Hitler's a complicated. You know, again, he's a complicated it's figure. Another show. <laughs> another, another show. Well, let's put it this way: Hitler's a guy whose whole political career went nowhere for about a decade until the Depression rolled along. That, that, that's that's what the whole thing. There's no huge mystery about this. And what I meant by Hitler not being Hitler is that this this is the way the narrative usually goes where Hitler is concerned. Hitler was some sort of uh, demonic genius and he you know or, or figure and he came along and he hypnotized all the Germans and made them go crazy and do terrible things. Now, yes. That's an oversimplification, but if you look at the general way in which Hitler and his career is portrayed, that's what he becomes. He becomes some sort of he becomes Sauron. All right, he becomes some sort of Tolkien-esque evil figure who hypnotizes all the Germans and makes them do terrible things. And nothing like that ever happened. First of all, nobody comes along and hypnotizes entire nations. No. Uh, Hitler was a you know political near-do-well. And th by the way, this is what authentic Nazis really hate when you say about Hitler, is that not when you say that he's an evil genius, but when you say that he's really kind of a nobody that got lucky. I guarantee you they don't like to hear that. <laughs> Calling him an evil genius really sort of feeds their ego about these things. Because it makes him important. It makes him it makes him the center of all of these things. And and this is one of the things that I think in particular American political analysis loves to do. It loves to personalize things. So everything about this becomes Putin. It's Putin's army. It's Putin's doing this. Every decision is being made by Putin. It's Putin, 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 Putin. And again, he becomes the, the evil genius who's hypnotized the Russians and making them do all of these basic things. What Vladimir Putin actually is, is a fellow of, again, there's nothing terribly remarkable about his career. You know, he was ambitious. He was ambitious enough, you know, Born in 1952, which makes him, you know, about a year younger than I am, uh, you know, grew up in the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, you eventually, if you're going to get ahead, uh, you go into something, uh, you know, studied economics in college. Most people, you know, he's, he's an economist. Uh, joined the KGB because, you know, that was, that was a way to get ahead. Uh, interesting work. He'd also studied German, and that gave him, able to use his language was in the KGB from about 1975 to 1991 when he resigned with the rank of lieutenant colonel. Uh, there's nothing remarkable about his KGB career. I mean, in comparing it to other people, there's nothing remarkable about it. Many other people went through that. Never seems to have been particularly dedicated, you know, join the Communist Party because, well, you know, being the KGB, you're going you're gonna to have to join the club. But it seems to have no particular – I mean the, the Soviet society and the infrastructure served his personal interests. It gave him an education. It gave him a career, and then it collapsed, and he had to look for another one. Uh, and then he became friends with a economics – a, a uh, economic law professor who he met in his studies at, at uh, in Leningrad University, a fellow by the name of Anatoly Sobchak. And Anatoly Sobchak, during the latter years of the Soviet regime, the 1980s, had been a kind of semi-dissident. Um, you know, he never came out and directly criticized or challenged the regime. You know, he wasn't going to become an Andrei Sakharov and get himself expelled. He managed to keep his teaching position. But he attracted a lot of younger people to him, including Putin, because Sobchak sort of, you know, pushed the envelope as much as he could in kind of criticizing 
the party and the state. And I think it's interesting that Putin was kind of attracted to him. And Sobchak sort of becomes his mentor. So Sobchak uh, is actually involved after the collapse of the Soviet Union. He attaches himself to Boris Yeltsin's new government, uh, is, is instrumental in actually writing the, the constitution of the Russian Federation. So it was a fairly important figure, becomes mayor of Leningrad, changes the name back to St. Petersburg, uh, does get, you know, later is accused by his enemies um, of corruption, which, you know, may have been true to a degree, but there is so much corruption in Russia in the 90s that, you know, even his even his worst critics argue that if Sobchak, you know, embezzled public funds, he wasn't embezzling as much as other people. And so Putin attached himself to Sobchak and, and basically worked with him. And that brought uh, Putin to the attention of Yeltsin. Uh, one of the things that Boris Yeltsin became more and more disillusioned with during the 1990s was the West. Uh, in fact, one of the things that Yeltsin supposedly told Putin towards the end of the 1990s is he goes that the Americans treat every other country like Haiti. They see every other country is just a version of Haiti. In other words, it's a state that they can essentially push around and do anything they want to, and that's the mm -hmm. way that they're treating us. And the real turning point, supposedly, for Yeltsin was the NATO war on Serbia in 1999. And the reason that was seen as critical is this was the idea. I mean, here was an interesting question that I've had Russians ask me, and it's an, you know that NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, was you know everybody knows was created as an anti-Soviet alliance. The United In States to its, its European. That's the only reason it existed. It was an anti-Soviet, i.e. anti-Russian alliance. Now, with the Soviet Union being gone, then the question is, why didn't NATO go as well? I mean, why do you need an anti-Soviet alliance in the absence of the Soviet that's a, Union? In the absence that's a very good enemy? question. And it continues to grow even this week. We have and uh, it continues, and it is an interesting. And and they could never get an, an answer to that. And instead, now you're looking at it from the Russian perspective, NATO not only didn't go out of business, it continued to expand closer and closer to Russia's borders. And uh, the 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 attack on Serbia or the war on Serbia over the whole you know an extension of the, of the Yugoslav wars earlier in the in the nineties alarmed Yeltsin and many other Russians because it was when it was this was when NATO was actually engaging in a war outside of its charter because there was nothing involved in Serbia or Kosovo that had anything to do with NATO NATO existed to protect its member states not to wage any type of aggressive punitive campaign against countries that were not part of NATO. And it was admitted at the time that this is a violation of NATO's charter, but hey, we're going to do it anyway. And that just, was just, seen as alarm. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, Rick, we have literally three minutes at the end of the show. So I just wanted to let you know that because if there's anything you want to, any point you want to get to before we close this, this, this well, particular show, and we've covered a lot of ground, but still <laughs> I have 150,000 questions. But, uh, uh, I'll make it very, very quick. Um, yes. uh, one of the things that, that Yeltsin eventually did was that he, he passed the baton to Putin, who's still holding on to it. Yes. But 
shortly after, and this, is, this tends to get lost in the shuffle, around 2000, shortly after Putin had uh, become the head of the Russian state, he made a couple of overtures to the West. And one was that, uh, why doesn't Russia join NATO? In other words, why don't we just create one big military umbrella? You know, See, that it wouldn't be anything hostile if we were all embracing it, one large military union. Uh, no, no, uh, you're too big, you wouldn't fit in. Well, then, how about Russia becoming part of the European Union? Uh, no, no, Russia's too big. It wouldn't fit in. So those overtures were made, and they were rejected. And that increased, I would argue, that if you wanted to develop a certain degree of Russian paranoia about the what the intentions of all of this was, you know, whether if whether it is paranoia, whether it is unjustified fear, or whether it was justified, that's where it becomes. And this is the whole question: is that why do you consistently maintain this military alliance that seems to be aimed at us? Indeed, you know, from there seems to be aimed at us. And uh, and and the the anti-Russian invective, which has come out of the Ukrainian war, uh, has you know th- th- there's apparently a lot of latent Russophobia out there, because you know this stuff just didn't come from nowhere. It, to me, this is just you know sort of Cold War tensions being recycled. Uh, it's you know they're the enemy again. Yes, yeah, so we so we can call them every name. Every every uh, every evil thing can be attributed to them because it's you know it's just it's just Stalin and the Soviet Union and the Tsar and the Cossacks and everything all over again. Look look what they did before. They're going to do it again, obviously. So you know it, it's uh, right. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, you know it's in their nature. Yeah. Um, so it's one of the fun person once put it is that uh, in the West Russians are often viewed one of two ways: they're either bumbling idiots or they're diabolically clever. Or some well, combination of the two. <laughs> I think that's that's one hell of a cliffhanger. <laughs> I, I so, genuinely do have so many questions for you, Rick, but we're, we're really out of time. We're down to uh, the last wire. Um, well, is there anything you'd like to close with? I hope I gave you with? something to think about and something useful, but you know, there's so much more. So much. You, more. you certainly have. I uh, really appreci- appreciate it. But I think... You know, if, if everyone else is in agreement, I'd very much like to ask you back because I still have pages of questions I'd like to ask you. And I'm sure Aneta and Kintia do as well. But um, I, I just think you've added a tremendous amount of context to what the situation, what's going on today. Uh, but I, I would like to take it further. Well, hopefully we can do that. So we, we can right. talk about that would be done. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you very well. much. With that, uh, I intend to close. So despite the initial unpleasant realization of the truth, you will see there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is an increasing number of respected journalists, writers, politicians, doctors, lawyers, influencers, artists, activists, healers, and innovators. We should add historians as well, who are wide awake and are already making great impact. All they require from you is to unplug from mainstream and social media propaganda, to make your own independent research, to stop acquiescing to stand up for what you believe in with respect to others. Remember, you were born with power and you wake up each day with power. It's entirely up to you how you choose to retain or give it away. You've been listening to another live broadcast of The Other Side of the News. This 95th edition is entitled War on Truth and remains available at www.theothersideofthenews.com. My name is Timothy Saunders, together with Kintia and Annette Driscoll. Offer special thanks to our guest, Dr. Richard B. Spence, our listeners, contributors, and our sound engineer, Keith Morgan. We wish you all a very positive week and look forward to reconnecting with you next time. Good night.